fundamentally, the reason that the red wave didn't materialize was because what we found in almost every case, not everyone, but in almost every case in a swing district or state was the mainstream candidate beat the extreme candidate. At least candidates that were perceived to be mainstream beat the ones perceived to be extreme. Now, again, it didn't hold everywhere. There are plenty of exceptions, but on the whole, broadly speaking, that's where people went and they were extreme and we weren't. And now the good fight with Yasha Monk. There is once again a big debate about Germany's willingness to help Ukraine. The particular occasion this time around is the government's differing about whether to allow the export of leopard tanks, which will become crucial for Ukraine as some of the older Soviet-era tanks, but it has ceased being fit for use. I think this is showing two important things. One is about the broader attitude towards the Ukraine war. The war has now been going on for nearly a year. There has been a tremendous amount of attention to it, especially at the beginning. But it is starting to feel a little bit abstract again, even though Ukraine is only a few hundred miles from parts of Germany, the war, I think, is starting to recede in the public consciousness a little bit. And the full stakes of helping a country defend itself against this terrible, bloody, unjust, violent invasion are starting to recede out of view a little bit. But the second point is more fundamental. And that is that Olaf Scholz spoke about a Zeitenwende, a great transition in eras, which requires a real transformation in how Germany thinks about itself about a year ago. But that Zeitenwende simply has not happened, and Germany still is not having a serious enough debate about how the Ukraine war, but more broadly the developments of the last years and decades, have changed the country's position. Germany, after 1945 and certainly after 1989, took a kind of holiday from history. It outsourced its security to the United States. It became a very pacific country in terms of its internal culture, very anti-militaristic. But all of that was in part premised by other people doing the work for Germany, by Germany being part of NATO, by the United States ensuring Germany's security guarantee. And I think the German public and the public of some other European countries still hasn't fully appreciated what it means that the United States has become less willing to play that role, that these countries have to think about what it means if a Donald Trump or an ally of this or a different kind of MAGA politician might again be president of the United States. They still have not fully understood that the era of relative peace after 1989 is over with autocracies like Russia and China resurgent in their desire to influence the world, not only by directly neighboring countries like Ukraine, but also other European countries from Sweden to Germany. So it is time for 
a country like Germany to understand, as Immanuel Kant might have said, the conditions of the possibility to reflect about what circumstances actually allowed the country to become the world champion of morality, as Germans sometimes like to think of themselves as, and to be more serious in thinking through what a new sustainable model for a truly changed time might look like. The debate of leopard tanks important mostly in revealing just how shallow, just how narrow the actual effort to grapple with that transformation has been in Germany so far. My guest today is Matt Bennett. Matt is a really insightful American campaign advisor and political operative. He has worked in a senior position in Bill Clinton's White House. He was a key member of the campaigns of Al Gore in 2000 and Wesley Clark in 2004. And he is the co-founder of Third Way, a center-left think tank. I talked to Matt to understand the layout of American politics as we slowly approach the 2024 election. We analyzed what happened in 2022, how Democrats were able to escape the red wave. We discussed why Democrats nevertheless continue to have a very serious image problem, which should worry them in the run-up to the next presidential elections. We discussed whether or not Joe Biden should run in 2024. And we talked about the extent to which the recent months have brought good news for those of us who are trying to show up America's democratic institutions. If you want to have a really smart analysis of where we're at at this particular juncture in American politics, this is it. Matt Bennett, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. You're one of the most insightful people I know about American politics. You know, a lot of people were predicting a red wave. And I think you were quite pessimistic about the Democrats' chances in the midterms as well. Why did the red wave not arrive? And what does that tell us about the strengths and weaknesses of the Republicans and the Democrats? Well, while I appreciate the shout out, the fact is that nobody in politics can predict anything anymore. Occasionally, people are right. Mostly, we're wrong. And in part, that's because these elections are so close. And when you're talking about elections that are within the margin of error, which many of these were, both before the election and, you know, the results ended up within three or four points, which is the margin for most of these polls, there's no way to use these polls to predict the outcome, certainly in ways that we thought were as clear as everyone believed. Well, the other thing is that at this point, you have response rates of 1% or below 1% for most telephonic polls. And it seems to me like, what is the definition of a weirdo? It's somebody who does something that less than 1% of a population do. So by definition, when you pick up the phone to answer a political poll, you are a weirdo and the behavior of you, I'm probably one of those weirdos, but the behavior that you're going to engage in is going to vary systematically from the rest of the population. So no matter how much you do the demographic adjustments on the other end, etc., the likelihood of a miss is just going to be high, especially when it's a question of a few percentage points. It is, but I would say in defense of my friends in the polling industry, they did pretty well despite all of that. You're right that it's very tough to get these things completed. 
to some extent, they're using text-based polling or online polling. And that started off in life very bad, but now it's gotten to be reasonably good at predicting things. So I think that the polling industry did okay. And certainly they can't be blamed for Republican disappointment or Democratic joy about overperforming expectations because I think some of these things were so close. But I think fundamentally, the reason that the red wave didn't materialize was because what we found in almost every case, not everyone, but in almost every case in a swing district or state was the mainstream candidate beat the extreme candidate. At least candidates that were perceived to be mainstream beat the ones perceived to be extreme. Again, it didn't hold everywhere. There are plenty of exceptions. But on the whole, broadly speaking, that's where people went and they were extreme and we weren't. So walk me through the evidence of this, because there's so many people out there saying persuasion isn't important anymore, swing voters aren't important anymore, this is all about base mobilization, trying to nominate these moderate candidates who are going to appeal to the other side is a waste of effort, you need the sort of charismatic candidates who give blue meat or red meat to the base, as the case may be, because they're going to be able to lead to turnout. What's your evidence that moderate Democrats are better than less moderate Democrats and that moderate Republicans did better than less moderate Republicans? Well, I mean, in fact, all of the evidence is on my side of that debate, all of it. So if you look at where people split their vote in major statewide races, for example, in Wisconsin and in Georgia, those are the two most obvious where Governor Evers, running as a down-the-middle mainstream Democrat, beat his more extreme opponent. The guy wasn't quite as bad as Kerry Lake or others, but Evers won that fight. And on the very same ballot, Mandela Barnes lost to Ron Johnson. I would argue that Barnes wasn't fairly characterized as an extremist, but that label was attached to him successfully because he didn't do enough to push himself away from the far left on issues like crime. And Johnson was able to capitalize on that. And so people split their ticket by six to eight percentage points. And then again, in Georgia, where you saw Governor Kemp beat Stacey Abrams soundly on the same ballot that Warnock won, or at least won a plurality and got to the runoff and then won. And Warnock very explicitly ran as a moderate. In fact, his campaign manager said, we could have followed the crowd and run to the left, and we chose not to do that. And that's the reason we won. So tell us a little bit about that contrast, because Stacey Abrams has been so lionized on the left, but really in the mainstream, the New York Times and so on over the last years as this great model for how to win elections. It's really striking that she twice failed to win in Georgia, even as, you know, another Democrat, and as it happens, somebody who's also Black, Rafael Warnock, was able to win. Now, part of it is, to be fair, is that Brian Kemp had managed to win some amount of bipartisan credentials by going up against Donald Trump in the electoral count 2020 for his quite a conservative Republican. And of course, Rafael Warnock's opponent, Herschel Walker, is very extreme and very easy to characterize as an extremist because he is. But there are, I think, also some differences between how Stacey Abrams ran and how Rafael Warnock ran. So what are those differences and what's the evidence that that matters, not just who they were running against? Look, Stacey Abrams deserves enormous amount of credit for building a turnout machine in Georgia that won the two Senate races in 2020 and was enormously important to helping Warnock get to and then win the runoff. There is no doubt that you have to do both. To some extent, this debate is silly because you have to turn out your base in politics and you also have to win the war of persuasion. But the idea 
that there is no such thing as a swing voter, that it's all about base mobilization is just baloney. I mean, it's disproven again and again. So two points. One, in answer to your question, Stacey ran as a more down the line progressive and she was running against, to your point, a popular governor who had distanced himself from Trump on the most important thing to Trump, which was denial of 2020, and did so very successfully. There are plenty of other cases in which progressives changed, people who had been perceived as very progressive had changed their perception in the general election. And I think the best example of that is John Fetterman in Pennsylvania. He had been one of Bernie Sanders' co-chairs on his presidential campaign. But he made it very clear, both in the primary and even more in the general election, that he was running as a mainstream Pennsylvania guy. And to the extent there was a weirdo in that race, it was this rich freak from New Jersey who was a quack doctor who had a bunch of houses. And he won that struggle to be the mainstream candidate. And I think that was the ball game in so many of these races. All right. So I buy it. I frankly bought it all along, but I wanted to push you to lay the evidence out on the table. So these more moderate candidates, one, how good a piece of news is that for American democracy, the rejection of the Carrie Lakes in Arizona, the Doug Mastrianos in Pennsylvania, the sort of election deniers and the ultra-market candidates in purple states? How reassuring is that for the lack of appetites that average Americans seem to have for Donald Trump and his acolytes as we look forward to his 2024? Well, on the one hand, I think it saved American democracy. So couldn't be better news. I think the fact that election deniers lost every single race in swing presidential states that mattered, every single one for secretary of state and governor, some extent attorney general, is enormously reassuring. However, Carrie Lake, who is the worst of the deniers, she is still denying her own loss to this day, I'm showing up at Lago every other day to yell and scream about it. She lost by less than one point. She came very, very close to beating Katie Hobbs. Now, Katie Hobbs did not run a fantastic campaign, as many have noted. She refused to debate. She is somewhat lackluster in her presentation, but she's a very smart and capable Secretary of State and was a very credible candidate. So the fact that that was so close is frightening because Kerry Lake is a horrible dystopian catastrophe if she becomes governor and she got very close to getting there. So while on the one hand, it is now virtually impossible for MAGA-aligned forces to steal the presidential election in 2024, which they were very much planning to try to do, that threat has been taken off the table. The threat that anti-democratic forces aligned with Trump and Trumpism, they are still very much alive, not everywhere. In Michigan, for example, they were soundly defeated and they're probably gone. But in other places like Arizona, they're around and they remain a serious problem. What does all of this tell us about the state of a Democratic Party? There was a set of polls, including one published by Third Way, showing that the Democratic Party brand was really troubled in the run-up to the midterms, that people feel that the Democratic Party is too extreme, that it's very far away from their own political position, and so on. On the other hand, the Democratic Party seems to have prevailed against Republicans in some key races, in part because actually people perceived a lot of Democratic candidates as being relatively moderate. So how do we square these two things? How worried should those of us who are concerned about a possible 
victory by somebody like Donald Trump in 2024 and who therefore want the Democratic Party to be broadly appealing, how worried should we be about that image problem you point out? Or should we look to the outcome of 2022 election and say, hey, you know what? Democrats avoided a grand shellacking. It was one of the best midterm results by an incumbent political party in a very long time. Whatever those polls show clearly is wrong, because that's not what happened when people turned out and voted. Look, I think we should be very, very worried about the state of the Democratic brand. And if you look, for one thing, at the outcome of the midterms, on the one hand, to your point, they were excellent. On the other hand, we were running against horrendously terrible candidates and almost lost to them. I mean, Herschel Walker can barely string sentences together, is credibly accused of horrific acts of domestic violence, is an outrageous hypocrite on the core conservative issue of abortion, and damn near beat a guy with six advanced degrees who is the senior pastor of the Ebenezer Baptist Church and a sitting senator. So that race should not have been close. Raphael Warnock should have wiped the floor with Herschel Walker. And the reason that he didn't has nothing to do with Warnock. He ran a very, very good race and has a very good record as senator. It has everything to do with the fact that even in a state that is starting to look kind of purple, it was very red before, the Democratic brand is in awful shape. And we suffered losses elsewhere. Tim Ryan ran what was a perfect Senate race. You cannot run a better Senate race than Tim ran in Ohio. He was running against J.D. Vance, who was a fraud in just about every way imaginable. But Vance was credible enough to not be labeled as an extremist and was able to beat Tim fairly comfortably, again, entirely because the D next to Tim's name just was death in a state like Ohio. The problem that we identified with the brand in the polling that we put out on the day before the election really boils down to two things. And you touched on one, which is when you ask voters to put themselves on an ideological spectrum, zero being very liberal, nine being very conservative, they put themselves slightly to the right of five. So just slightly to the center right, which we've always kind of known. This is a slightly center right country. They put the two parties and their two leaders, Trump and Biden, roughly in the same position, a couple of points away from center on the left and the right. The problem is they put themselves closer to Trump and the Republicans on that scale than they do to Biden and the Democrats. And then the second problem we identified was that even in an age in which Republicans have become more extreme than I could possibly have imagined on the day that Newt Gingrich led the takeover of Congress in 1994, I mean, they are credibly called fascists in some respects. When you ask people which party is more extreme, they basically say it's a tie. They say the Democrats and Republicans are equally extreme. And to a partisan like me, that's insane, but it is also evidence that our brand is in very bad shape and we got to do something about it. So you disagree that the parties are equally extreme and I disagree that the parties are equally extreme. But why is that the popular perception? What is it that Democrats do wrong so as to allow that perception to stand, as to allow a lot of Americans or Americans on average to say, look, Republicans are extreme and I don't like them, I don't trust them. But you know what? Democrats are just as extreme. I think there's a couple of things. One is something Democrats do and the other is something Republicans do. Democrats have an extreme faction in our party that hold office. There are six or arguably seven members of the House in the so-called squad. And there's Bernie Sanders in the Senate who literally call themselves socialists. And that term socialist, whether you capitalize it or not, has become 
a signal to voters that you are extreme, that you are out of touch with everyday Americans, with mainstream thought. And embracing that term and all that comes with it, like ideas that are incredibly unpopular, like defund the police and abolish ICE, those kinds of things really have attached to the Democratic brand because those members have very powerful megaphones. They're extraordinarily gifted at using social media and mainstream media to amplify their message so that voters hear them louder than they hear Joe Biden or Nancy Pelosi or Chuck Schumer. And it didn't used to be this way. I mean, this is the power of social media. In the old days, there were always cranks or extremists in both parties, and they would go down to the floor of the House and they would yell into the C-SPAN microphones for a minute, you know, every day, and no one would pay them the least bit of attention. But now, with millions of social media followers, they have become the face of and the voice of the Democratic brand. The first question I have is, what can Democrats actually do to control that problem? Because part of it is about social media and who has the best zinger on social media and all of that. And perhaps there you can compete a little bit by improving how you argue and what you do. But part of it is also about mainstream media. I mean, what I'm really impressed by in 2018 is the way in which you know, every mainstream media outlet put AOC and a bunch of other people in the squad on the cover of you know, Vanity Fair, of all of these kinds of publications. And there was actually very interesting first-time Congress people elected in that election, including a lesbian Native American from a mostly a red state, who didn't get any kind of attention from the mainstream media. So, you know, there's just the agency over who is profiled in that kind of way seems to be out of the hand of a mainstream Democratic Party. And the second thing I want to push you on is that socialist label is, I think, toxic in the United States in the way you point out. Now, some people have made the argument, and I've heard Pete Buttigieg say this on the campaign trail too, you know, whoever we run, they're going to portray as a socialist, right? Like Barack Obama was portrayed as a socialist. So, you know, what does it matter if you call yourself that? Pete, of course, doesn't. But what does it matter if you call us that? They're going to call us that anyway. What's your response to that point? So let me start with the second question on that, which is, what you have to do if you're a presidential candidate is do exactly what Biden did in 2020, which is to say, do I look like a socialist? Me? You think I am a socialist? Joe Biden? His brand was powerful enough from 40 years in public life and his billion dollar presidential campaign that he was able to escape that quite easily. People, they did not feel that it was credible to charge that Joe Biden is a socialist. That seems to me like the obvious answer. People are still going to make the charge. There's still going to be somebody on Fox News saying Biden is a socialist. The question is, for the persuadable voters, do they buy it or not? And with Obama, they didn't buy it. With Biden, they didn't buy it. And that helped them win. Exactly. And if we nominate mainstream candidates for president, it isn't going to attach to them because they have the wherewithal to push away. However, look at what happened in 2020. On the same ballot that Joe Biden won, we lost a net of 14 House seats. That is not supposed to happen. And some of those we lost because... They were accused of wanting to do things like defund the police. So my friend Anthony Brindisi from Utica, New York, he was a freshman member of Congress. He lost his seat in 2020 by 190 votes, and he was attacked relentlessly. This was a lie, but as wanting to defund the police. It wasn't true, but it was very powerful. And that happened all over the place. But then look at what happened in South Florida to people like Debbie McCarcel Powell, also a first-term member of Congress, very low name recognition in her own district. She'd only been there for two years. And when she was 
accused of being a socialist, despite the fact that her family had fled socialism when she was a kid, that really stuck to her in a district in which socialism is a four-letter word. So I think Democrats need to be very mindful that they have to push back strongly when they're accused of this. And it's much easier to do when you're at the top of the ticket than when you're down the ballot. But on the other point, you noted that the squad and AOC and others who came into Congress in 2018, they got all the attention. But on the same ballot that brought them to Congress, we had Sharice Davids, to your point, this Native American from Oklahoma, who is still in Congress and won a tough race this time. And we had people like Soshi Torres-Small. Soshi Torres-Small, like AOC, was a young, telegenic Latina. She represented Southern New Mexico. But unlike AOC, she was mainstream in her views. She was a member of the New Democrats and didn't garner the kind of fawning media attention that the others got. And there were people in Sochi's district that thought that their member of Congress was AOC. I mean, that's the power that these folks have with their social media and mainstream media presence. And that's a real problem for us. So if that sort of helps to explain some of the brand of a democratic party, what's the agency to get out of that? Because, you know, America is a huge place. There's a lot of very safe blue districts. You know, the people who have managed to win nomination battles in those districts are unlikely to be unseated. They're extremely unlikely to ever lose a general election. So that wing of a democratic party is going to continue to be there. And at least so far, it feels as though the social media attention is going to stay there. And the mainstream media which itself is often staffed by journalists who have some of the socioeconomic attributes of progressive America, which, as we know from the Hidden Tribe study by Moore Common, is more affluent, better educated, more rich, on average more white than the average person, is going to continue giving preferential treatments to them in terms of the kind of attention they get. So are Democrats stuck with that bad brand, or how can they get out of it without a sort of internal civil war? Look, I think to some extent there's nothing we can do about some of those things. It is impossible, for example, to book House New Democrats, the mainstream moderates, on television. They just don't get on television. Cable bookers do not find them interesting because they're saying mainstream things, whereas it's very interesting to book extremists. So, you know, Vanity Fair is not going to put Susan Delbene, the chair of the House New Democrats, on their cover. That is just not happening. So we are stuck with this to some extent because of bias in the media or because they like extremism more than they like moderation. However, there is a lot Democrats can do to escape the trap and remember that we don't have to do it everywhere or with everyone. I mean, look, we're not going to compete in the presidential in most states. We are going to win easily in some and we're going to lose big in others. We're going to compete in about 10 states. Obviously, that's true in Senate and House and governor's races as well. So we don't have to convince deep red base conservative voters that we're not a bunch of socialist wackos. We have to convince swing voters who are the ones that are going to decide elections in this very closely divided electorate that we can be trusted, that we're a safe pair of hands. And we did that successfully to some extent in 2022. We missed in a few other places, and we have got to do that more consistently. So let me ask you the biggest question of 2024. Joe Biden, I think, ran a very effective campaign in 2020, helped us do something which few countries around the world have achieved, which is to push a far-right populist out of office at the first opportunity to do so when they're first running for re-election. All of that, I think, is to his credit. He has 
accomplished quite a lot legislatively in the first two years. So he can run on a pretty good record. At the same time, he's very unpopular when you look at the polls. And his age is showing. He's 80 years old. He's going to be 86 by the time that he would finish a second presidential term. It is unclear how vigorously he could campaign in 24, especially when it's not a Zoom election campaign, but one which he would have to fly around the country and hold speeches in multiple occasions every day. Is he the right candidate for 2024, despite those concerns? I think he is. And let me start with one note about the stakes, because On the day that you and I met in 2017, it was at a small conference, and you gave a talk. And of the many things I've learned from you, this one I think has stuck with me the most. And you said back in 2017, just after Trump had been inaugurated, you said the danger to America is greatest if Trump is replaced by a more mainstream candidate, and that candidate loses the next election, and there is a snapback to an authoritarian after that. And I think about that all the time, because... That snapback could be to Trump or it could be to another authoritarian figure like DeSantis. So I think the stakes here are enormous for America and for the world. For that reason, I think it is very important that President Biden chooses to run again, and I hope he does. And if he does, the Democrat Party needs to line up behind him immediately. The reason I think he would be the strongest candidate, notwithstanding his age, which is the only factor in the negative column about running again is recognizing that the data set is small. American presidents tend to get reelected, especially if they don't face primaries from their own party. So Jimmy Carter faced a very strong primary from Ted Kennedy. George H.W. Bush faced one from Pat Buchanan. Both of them lost. The only other modern president to lose a reelect is Trump, and he was the worst president in American history, and in the middle of a pandemic that he was badly mishandling. So I think the evidence is pretty clear that the power of incumbency is very, very strong. And Biden has amassed a very impressive record legislatively and substantively on the world stage and politically. And I think he would be our strongest candidate, just without question. What about some of his weaknesses? What about the fact that it'll be hard for him to campaign as vigorously as he would have done 10 or 15 years ago? What about some of those embarrassing moments that go viral on social media, which do seem to go beyond the gaffes that he's always been famous for, which do seem to indicate that, you know, he's showing his age, that he is an 80-year-old man. And even though he may be unusually energetic and fit for an 80-year-old man, he's 80 years old. And that's not the time at which people are at the physical or perhaps cognitive best. Do I wish that Joe Biden were 20 years younger? I very much do. Look, there is nothing that anyone can do about that. And it's been reported recently that he says to people, like, do you think I don't know how effing old I am? And he knows, and Jill knows, and everyone around him knows precisely what his age means for his ability to execute that job. And all of those people are deeply responsible patriots. None of them would tell him that he should run for re-election if they truly believe that he couldn't do the job. I would argue that Ronald Reagan, though younger in actual years than Biden is now, was as or more disabled by his age than Biden was in 1984 because he soon developed real signs of cognitive decline. I mean, very serious signs that became like full-blown dementia by the time he was done with his second term. And that isn't to say that I think that Reagan was irresponsible for running again in 1984, but human beings occupy these offices and things can happen to human beings at any age. And I think so far the evidence is that Joe Biden can do this job. 
let's assume that Joe Biden decides to step down, as he might. What do you think happens next? Is it obvious that Kamala Harris would become the Democratic Party nominee? And if so, what do you think her electoral chances would be against Donald Trump or perhaps against uh, Ron DeSantis? I think the only thing that's obvious if Biden doesn't run is that we will have a contested primary. I don't think it is going to be a coronation for Kamala Harris. There is very little doubt that she would be the leading contender going into the primary. The Democrats have never denied the nomination to a sitting or former vice president since 1952. So look, she's the front runner. She has the power of incumbency. She's got Air Force Two. And when I worked for Al Gore, I saw the power of that up close. We rolled over Bill Bradley fairly easily. However, I don't think that will deter others from running against her. And I hope it doesn't. Not because I don't think Harris could be a strong nominee, but because I think she or anyone is a much stronger nominee if she comes through a vigorous primary process. If you think about it, every president elected for the first time has come through a tough primary campaign where they had to give and receive punches, where the oppo research came out on them, and where they learned the craft of running for president. And those who don't have tough campaigns tend to do worse than those who do. I mean, Gore probably would have been better off if there had been a bigger field running against him in 2000 than just Bill Bradley. While Hillary had a tough race against Obama, it was kind of one-on-one, and it was basically a coronation for her to lose. And I hope that instead of that, we have a real contest and that if Harris comes out on top, I think she'd have a lot of wind at her back and would be a stronger candidate than people give her credit for now. Who are some of the candidates who you would be excited for in 2024 if Joe Biden doesn't run and if it doesn't end up being Kamala Harris? Or alternatively, which are some of the candidates that we can look to towards 2028 when the candidate certainly will not be Joe Biden? Well, let me start by saying I do think that Vice President Harris would be a strong candidate if she wins the nomination. I don't think she'd be a strong candidate if the nomination is simply handed to her. But if she did, I'd be excited for her because that would have proven something about her ability. There are plenty of others out there. Some are obvious. Pete Buttigieg is probably the best political communicator in the Democratic Party right now. I don't think anyone else is really close when it comes to that. Gretchen Whitmer has won twice in a key state in Democratic politics. She cleaned the clock of her primary opponent, and then she won decisively twice in general elections, and she's run the state very capably. Jared Polis is an enormously popular governor in Colorado. It'd be interesting to have two married gay men in the race. And there are plenty of others. I mean, look, Raphael Warnock, you can't discount him. He is kind of in the Obama slot right now and has run four extraordinarily impressive races in a very, very tough state. So there's a bunch of people out there I think that could be interesting. Tell me a little bit about the state of the Republican Party and the Republican primaries. I'm very confused about how to think about Donald Trump's prospects for winning the 2024 primaries. You know, I think he is fading as we speak. There are a lot of Republicans who belong to the new MAGA establishment who are skeptical about putting him on the ballot again. I think they have seen that he has lost from elections in 2018 and 2020 and 2022. They see his deep and in some ways still increasing personal responsibility. At the same time, he seems to have a pretty strong hold on 15 20% of the US population. And given our screwed up primary system, that may be enough to push him through. So do you think Trump is going to emerge as the winner of this primary election? If not, is it likely to be Ron DeSantis or could somebody else squeak through? What should we expect? 
Well, the one thing we've learned about the Republican Party in the last decade or so is that making predictions about who's next no longer works. It did work for a long time. The Republicans nominated the next guy up every time. It was H.W. Bush, and then it was Dole, and then it was George W. Bush, and they were very consistent, McCain, Romney. And then it all went to hell in 2016 when Jeb was supposed to be the next guy up and lost, obviously, to Trump. So I think the two most important factors to consider is, one, the establishment has no control over Republican primary voters. If they did, Mitch McConnell would have had a much different group of Senate nominees in 2022 than he did, and he probably would be majority leader. Second is their primary system is quite different than the Democrats. In the Democratic system, it's proportional. So in most states, you get a proportion of the delegates based on your proportion of the vote. They're winner take all. And that's what made him the nominee in 2016 when he won pluralities in virtually every state and came away with a huge delegate lead by the time they got to the convention. That could happen again, especially if the anti-Trump forces do not coalesce behind DeSantis, which it appears they are not going to do. I mean, there's a whole bunch of candidates out there, not least Mike Pence and a bunch of others who are getting ready to run. And that could result in the same thing we saw in 2016. So I think that lack of control by the establishment and their system could give us Trump again as their nominee. What do you think about Ron DeSantis? I haven't done much diligence on him yet. I really need to go back and read all of the profiles that have been written by him and watch a whole bunch of debates and speeches and so on. I obviously have a sense of him, but not as much as I would like at this stage. I feel like I have to do my homework on that. But I'm very torn about how to think about him, because on the one hand, Donald Trump is a proven threat to American democracy. He tried to impede a peaceful transition of power in 2020. He is deeply personally erratic in ways that are very dangerous when you're the commander in chief. And so I continue to think that he is a unique threat. That makes me a little bit allergic to some attempts by journalists and even by some scholars to say, hey, here's the next guy, and he's just as bad. I don't think that he's better in any kind of way. Everything is the same kind of threat. Any Republican is as bad as the other. At the same time, there are some things about DeSantis that concern me, like some of his actions on election day in 2022, like his flirting with some conspiratorial positions, like his apparent flirting, for it seems a little bit ambiguous with an anti-vax position. So he seems to be somebody who's willing to go wherever it takes in order to win the MAGA mantle and its support. How concerned should we be if Ron DeSantis became the Republican nominee and potentially the president in 2024? I think we should be very concerned. Now, on the one hand, I agree that Trump is a unique threat. His pathologies are not shared by other leading contenders for president. And those, I think, are what make him a truly existential threat to American democracy and, frankly, global democracy. I think there is no scenario worse than Trump becoming president again, and there's nothing really that comes close. Having said that, I think a DeSantis presidency, or frankly, any Republican that we could see winning their nomination in 2024, would be very, very dangerous. The lesson they have learned is that their voters demand right-wing populism. And right-wing populism in America is dangerous and bad. My dad is an American historian. He wrote a book about demagogues during the Depression era, like Father Coughlin. This isn't new. 
the anti-Semitism that is recurring, the racism and bigotry, they've adopted the name America First from Nazi sympathizers. I mean, it is unbelievable that we are here again, but here we are. And I think DeSantis is cynical enough, and I think everybody else planning to run shares this, that he would adopt those things, whether he believes them philosophically or not, because he thinks he needs to do that to win. The other thing I would say about DeSantis is that the threats to our democracy are not limited to the way that we cast and count our votes. The way that he has governed, I think, is a fundamental democratic threat. He has used the power of government to punish his political opponents very explicitly, not just Disney, but, you know, the Tampa Bay Marlins and others where he has used government power and government money to extract revenge for things that were completely unrelated to the business line of these companies. I think that's very dangerous. You've given us an amazing tour de force of American politics. Leave us with one thing we should be really worried about over the next years and one thing that we should be hopeful about in terms of thinking about the state of American democracy as we slowly approach the 2024 elections and uh, look beyond that. Well, the thing that I'm the most worried about is that notwithstanding the fact that there is no moral equivalence between the extremists on the far left and the extremists on the far right, they are viewed basically equally in control of their parties and equally uh, dangerous by voters in the middle. And I think that is a very, very serious problem. Look, Bernie Sanders and AOC, in my view, have some bad ideas, but they are not dangerous to American democracy the way that many on the far right are, virtually everyone. And yet, that's just not how voters are perceiving it. I think that's a very dangerous situation for us. I think the thing to be hopeful about, however, is that the overwhelming verdict from the 2022 race is that mainstream beats extreme. And if we can hold on to that going into 2024, we might see the Joe Biden of 2020 coming back on the campaign trail. And that's a pretty attractive Biden. And that could help move the brand of the party significantly enough so that we could prevail, possibly get the House back and certainly win the White House. Matt Bennett, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. It's been great. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please mail suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. Thank you.